Morning, friends. Please pray with me. Our Father, thank you for your word. Please drive it into our minds and our hearts so that we may understand you and what you've done for us and serve you all our days. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Listen to these words of C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian writer reflecting on the death of his wife, Joy. When you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Not that I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Now Lewis was reflecting on his despair and forsakenness when his wife died. King David knew that despair. We read it in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. You lay me in the dust of death. And in verse 11, the ultimate horror. Trouble is near and there is no one to help. Why? Why, my God, why, why? Do you have young children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews? My daughter's an early childhood teacher and she tells me it's an established statistic that the average four-year-old asks why about 400 times a day. (laughs) Why? It was C.S. Lewis's cry as his wife approached death and after she died, why God, why? Are you listening? It's King David's cry in Psalm 22. He feels abandoned by God. Why are you so far from saving me? You don't answer. Trouble's near and there's no one to help. And I expect there have been times when that was your cry. When things have been so terrible, so hard, and you've been so low and you cried out to God, but God simply didn't seem to listen. Perhaps you wondered if he was really there at all. Why have you forsaken me? Are you listening? Now, my God, my God is the Bible's phrase of covenant relationship. Not just God, but my God. And the frightening thing in this psalm is that the relationship seems to have been severed, like a limb being amputated. Where are you, my God? You're just not answering me. Forsakenness, distance, silence. Then, about 2,000 years ago, 
Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross and executed outside Jerusalem. We heard part of Matthew's account of it read by Kate from chapter 27. And about 3 p.m., just before he died, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was alone. He was abandoned. He was betrayed by his friends, surrounded by enemies, forsaken. Jesus was one of us, a human. Now, I think the fear of being abandoned, forsaken, is a universal human fear. When a treasured relationship ends, or a parent or a child or a friend dies, or the people around you exclude you from the group. But there was something much worse than that going on for Jesus. Yes, completely alone against enemies who wanted him dead, but more than that, he was forsaken by God. Can you imagine that? That's difficult to understand, isn't it? Jesus was there on the cross because he was obedient to his father, because he trusted him, because he told the truth at his trial and refused to escape. And his murderers were mocking him. Did you hear that in Matthew 27? Come down from the cross and we'll believe you. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. If he wants him. What an idiot. He said he was God's son. And listen to him now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly the same as the first line of Psalm 22. Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 as he died. In his distress and horror, as he ran out of breath and his blood slowly dribbled out onto the ground, he was reaching for something he'd prepared earlier. Let me tell you how I feel. He had a statement prepared to tell people how he felt and what was going on. And open in front of you, if you have it there, in your Bible, in Psalm 22, are the spirit-inspired words written by King David a thousand years before, pre-prepared, ready to be quoted and experienced by another king on the cross. Jesus had something deeply personal and important to say before he died, and Psalm 22 is real and it's raw and it was perfect. Expressed precisely what Jesus felt at 3pm on that terrible day in April. But as well as telling how he felt, Jesus used Psalm 22 to open a door for us to understand his heart and his purpose more deeply. How do you think David, the writer of the psalm, understood those words when he wrote the psalm a thousand years before Jesus? What was he thinking? It's hard to know exactly, but we can be sure that he was really describing his, gen- his own genuine experience of danger and terror from his human enemies and persecution and aloneness. Then Jesus, in his dying moments on the cross, opened the Psalm 22 envelope again, took his statement out of his back pocket, although it wasn't his back pocket, because he was naked on the cross in front of crowds of people. And he read from his mind, from his memory, that very short prepared speech from the psalm, and it described precisely what he was going through at the hands of his enemies. When Jesus claimed the psalm as his on the cross, he fulfilled it in ways that David would probably never have anticipated. 
And as we read it, we'll realise that it was for us. That his excruciating physical suffering and abandonment was to rescue us from death and despair and being forsaken by God. See, in God's remarkable provision, this psalm operates on several levels in three different times. It's King David's own cry of forsakenness and God's apparent neglect of his plight way back in Israel's history. Then a thousand years later, it's quoted by Jesus to describe his own anguish and forsakenness on the cross in the moments before his heart stopped beating and he died. But this psalm was written for us too, to help us understand Jesus' sacrifice for us and to give us words, words for the times when grief and forsakenness overwhelms us and we have no words of our own. You'll notice too it's a moving psalm, moving in more ways than one. It's only 31 verses long, but it moves an incredible distance from a desperate place of emotional loneliness and abandonment, even death, to a place of triumph and victorious happiness. uh, Verses 1 to 19 are spoken by the king, alone and dying and forsaken by God and his people. And then from verse 20 till the end, to the king rescued and alive and surrounded by his people from every nation. The first of the two sections, the king alone, forsaken by God and his people. King David describing an appalling experience here and Jesus takes it up as his. Some of us will identify with different parts of this experience, but the whole experience belonged uniquely to Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2 if you have it open there. Verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 7, restless cries of anguish day and night that apparently went unheeded. I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me and hurl insults. Verse 11, desperation. Trouble is near and there is no one to help. Verse 12 and verse 16, the king's enemies, these are people, but they're like animals, they're terrifying. They surround him like huge bulls or roaring lions. They're tearing and piercing and gnashing. He's alone against a mob and he's losing. Verses 14 and 15, the terrible physical symptoms of fear. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You know what it feels like, don't you? Poured out like water. Bones out of joint. Your limbs going floppy. Heart palpitations. Dry mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And yet... This terrible situation that he's in is not the worst part. The worst thing is what God is doing or what God isn't doing. You see, the enemies are doing what enemies do. King David was used to that. For so much of his kingship, it had been David alone against his enemies, but with God on his side. He was absolutely familiar with human conflict and opposition. But this time, he was entirely alone 
and abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why? Why are you so far from saving me? Why don't you answer? There's no one to help. God, it seemed, wasn't listening. So in his desperation, David did the wise thing, the godly thing. You'll see it in verses 3 to 5. He looked up from his suffering and looked to God. You're enthroned as the Holy One, he realises. And he looked back to the lessons of his past. His Israelite ancestors put their trust in God and God delivered them again and again and again. That's how it's supposed to work. But this time, looking up and looking back just makes it worse because that's not happening. His enemies are not being put to shame. He is. In fact, they mock him for trusting God. Verse 8, let the Lord rescue him if he likes him so much. So David the psalmist pauses to reconsider and check his heart. Have I got this right? Have I gone off beam here? Verses 9 and 10, is my faith authentic? Have I really trusted God? Right? You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Have I really trusted God? And the answer is yes, I really have. From birth, almost every minute of every day. So why have you forsaken me, God? And then, a thousand years later, Jesus uses David's real experience of suffering to describe his own experience of suffering on the cross. And the details match so closely. Psalm 22 describes precisely what Matthew 27 records. Not only what Jesus felt, but what happened, and even the exact words of his enemies as he hung on the cross dying. Isn't that extraordinary? They did shake their heads. They did hurl insults. They did surround him like fierce wild animals in verse 16. They did pierce his hands and feet and divide his clothes among them and gamble for them. Psalm 22 is an astonishing prediction of exactly what happened. Do you sometimes have trouble believing that Jesus is God? Well, just just try this. Try predicting and then controlling the exact details of your own execution by a foreign global superpower. Your friend's betrayal, even the very words the onlookers spoke, try doing that without being God. See how you go. But put yourself in Jesus' shoes too. You're naked, exposed to the crowd, humiliated, at the mercy of the mob, who are mocking God the whole time. Enemies gambling for your clothes and you know you'll never need those clothes again because this is the end of the road for you. Your blood is seeping out into the dust. David said to God in the psalm, you did this, God. You lay me in the dust of death. Real despair, real forsakenness for a real person who had trusted God his whole life and spoke these real words. And it's precisely the same for Jesus. But remember, these prepared words Jesus spoke came from Psalm 22. Well, Psalm 22 doesn't doesn't end with death and defeat. 
Yes, the king in the psalm is alone and forsaken by God. But from verse 20 onwards, things really change. Despite his suffering and abandonment, the king just keeps trusting God to rescue him from his suffering. Look at the king's words in verses 19 to 21. Help me, deliver me, rescue me, save me. And it turns out that God did want him. Although he was in the dust of death, and in Jesus' case, actually fully, literally dead, the king had a future after all. David calls God Lord, capital, all capitals, his special covenant name. And although everything is very bleak, the promise of God's covenant word enables Jesus to trust. Where do you look when your circumstances are bleak? Where do you look when your circumstances are bleak? Not to the circumstances, to God's promises. In verse 24, you see, God had not hidden his face from him forever, but rather he had listened to his cry for help. Well, that's a bit late, you might think, to listen to his cry after he died. But now in this second half of the psalm, we're looking towards the future. And now the psalm mentions a whole lot of things that dead people don't do. In verse 29, you can see they're dead. They're definitely dead. They go down to the dust. They're people who can't keep themselves alive. Yet in the psalm's picture of the great assembly around the king, the dead people are eating and praising and remembering and feasting and worshipping and proclaiming God's righteousness. The future feasting and joy is for those who can't keep themselves alive. How does that work? David, who wrote the psalm as the Holy Spirit directed him to, must have wondered how all this fitted together. Dead people, eating, feasting, celebrating. But David himself was never executed. So ultimately he must have been describing someone else's execution. And the promise of a future feast for people who have died. What did that mean? Are we talking perhaps resurrection after death? Certainly looks like that. But if David found this confusing when he wrote the psalm, there was no confusion for Jesus. He knew what was coming because he trusted his father completely. Do you remember Jesus had been repeatedly telling his followers time and time again, I'm going to be killed and in three days I'll be raised to life again. When Jesus quoted Psalm 22 as his pre-prepared speech, prepared speech, not pre-prepared, I know Tim Watson will pull me up on that one, he was in incredible distress. But he wasn't confused or disappointed. He was quoting the tragic, sad beginning of a psalm which he knew had a joyful, triumphant conclusion. Not alone, not forsaken anymore. Rescue. Life. New life. For the king. Life forever. And for all the king's trusting people around him, praising God. Remember the mockery and insults of the enemies in Psalm 22? The hostile, sarcastic taunt. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But now it turns out Jesus is the one whom God delights and he wants him. In fact, he wants him and loves him so much that he resurrected him from death. 
Jesus did the right thing in trusting God and dying. And despite what it looked like as he poured out his life in this gruesome, forsaken suffering on the cross, this king was rescued by his father and defeated death and rose to indestructible life. Verses 22 to 24 tell us how the story ended. God didn't despise him. He didn't ignore his suffering. He didn't hide his face from him. He did listen to his cry for help. He rescued him. King's not alone, not forsaken by God anymore. That's good news for the king. But there's more. It's not just good news for him, but for all his people too. We're his people as we trust in him. The last part of the psalm paints a triumphant picture when God has rescued him and the triumphant king is, king is surrounded by his joyful people. It was true for King David, who lived to declare God's praises in this psalm. It was true for his brothers, the Israelites and sisters. It was true for the whole assembly. God's solution for a wrecked, rebellious world, seriously mucked up by humans, mired in selfish wars and environmental disaster and hunger and global warming and catastrophic events and corporate greed and our hatred for one another. God's solution was always to put a king on the throne after he'd suffered. A king who was a son, not David, but a David king. And three days after that king's death was his coronation day, resurrection day. So that now the king is surrounded by his people, kneeling before him, proclaiming his righteousness, the rich, the poor, all those from every nation who kneel before Jesus. He suffered alone, forsaken, so he could be victorious in company with us, his people. What's the awful alternative to that? I want us to pause for a moment of reality and think. What would it be like? What would we experience? What would your future be if you were to refuse the king's offer and hold out against him? Listen to this little scenario written by a Christian not too long ago, trying to imagine the alternative, the forsaken alternative, without a rescue forsaken by God. He had never felt such aloneness before. Where is my wife? He choked. Only that awful echo, not here. Your wife is not here. He tried to piece it together, but the darkness was too thick. Once in a while, he thought he would see a blurred figure or hear an anguished moan. He remembered the pain, those last few moments of terror, but it was nothing compared to the feelings that were creeping into his awareness now. Again he cried, where's my wife? Not here. Your wife is not here. Where are my children? Your children are not here. He started to grope around in the darkness, but all was blindness. My God, he howled again. Let me feel the presence of one single human being. My God. He hadn't said those, hadn't said those words in a long time. My God. Now they seemed so hollow. Terror was welling up in him. He felt like a small child being threatened by deep darkness. No candles anywhere, no love anywhere, no voice anywhere. Where is my wife? He screamed. Your wife is not here. 
Where are my children? He pleaded. Your children are not here. Then the greatest fear of all came to his mind. He was terrified to ask, but he knew he'd have to. His whole body trembled as he pursed his lips and wailed into the nebulous night. Where, oh, where is God? As the deepest of all darkness closed in on his soul for all eternity, he heard that hideous echo whispering that most hideous of all judgments. God is not here. It's a scenario, but it pictures being without God, being forsaken by God. It's what happened to the king on the cross for us. Psalm 22, Jesus' prepared death speech, tells us that it's the king's forsakenness by God and his terrible but obedient death that has made this possible. It's because of his abandonment and suffering and death that he can gather his people from all the nations of the world, even those who die, to praise his Father, God, forever. That's what we're doing here in church, together, in the assembly, praising God. God listened to that king's desperate cry for help. Sometimes, like David, perhaps perhaps often, we'll feel the sad, tragic words of Psalm 22 are ours in the trials, the disappointments, the loneliness, the forsakenness of life. That feels like the first part of the psalm. Why have you forsaken me, God? Where are you? Why aren't you answering my prayers? But in the final great trial, the battle with death itself, Jesus was forsaken, cut off, amputated from God so that we never need to be. And look at David's words immediately after Psalm 22. Psalm 23, the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And the end of that psalm. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The answer to a whole creation mutiny and failure and rejection of God is what happened at 3pm on that Friday in April. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The king suffered. He was mocked. He was shamed and pierced and forsaken by God so that we're not and never will be. He lay in the dust of death so that we, who can't keep ourselves alive, will feast and worship with him. And as we trust in him, God delights in us too and will rescue us. He's promised to. I want you for one minute to speak with somebody sitting near you, next to you, and do what the psalm is doing. Declare his praises. Think about what he has done so that we will not have to do it. Now...